This will go better if I have my Bible. <laughs> well, I'm excited this morning to be starting a new sermon series, even if it's a short one, on the book of Jonah. Jonah's a short book. It's only four chapters. And so uh, we're going to have four sermons here, or four sermons, just one sermon series, but four sermons. Jonah, uh, before we actually open up and read Jonah chapter one, and the words will be on the screen as well. But before we do that, uh, just a couple of words or a couple of thoughts about uh, Jonah in general and the minor prophets in general. Uh, Jonah is in a chunk of scripture called the minor prophets. Minor, not because they're unimportant, but minor because they're shorter than uh, books like Isaiah or Jeremiah, which usually have about 50, 60 chapters. And so Jonah is uh, in the midst of this series or, or this chunk called the Minor Prophets. And the Minor Prophets have a, as a whole have at least two things in common. One is a very strong focus on God's justice and on his mercy and how those things fit together. And we're going to see already in Jonah chapter 1 uh, that Jonah is someone who loves justice uh, and that God also is someone who loves both justice and mercy. The second thing that all the minor prophets have in common in general is a focus on the nations, not just on Israel, but all of Israel's neighbors, the nations around them. And so uh, I'm also going to show you a map this morning and we'll see just a, a little bit of the uh, geography for a few seconds. And those of you who are watching at home will have the opportunity to pause it there because um, we're going to go through that pretty quick. But it's important and, and I think helpful to know that in the Minor Prophets we see this emphasis on God's justice and mercy and also this emphasis on God's love for all the nations. And we also, before we start, we know one other thing about Jonah outside of the book of Jonah. And it really sets Jonah up as a foil or kind of a, an, an opposite of God. There's in, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, if you want to check later, we, uh, we are introduced to Jonah for the first time in the history of God's people. And we just get a snapshot of Jonah. He's someone who is very pro-Israel. He is uh, focusing on, or he's, he's an advisor to the king, and he's helping the king to determine whether or not Israel should expand their empire or their borders. And, and Jonah, we see in Second Kings, is someone who's wanting to push the boundaries of Israel, of the nation of Israel. And so uh, we know this about the minor prophets, that we see God's love and uh, his, we see his mercy and justice, his love for the nations. And we know about Jonah, that he's someone who desperately loves Israel and is a, um, has a lot of national pride. So, with that in mind, let's open up the word of God to Jonah. We're going to read all of chapter 1. Now Jonah, or excuse me, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, the opposite direction, from the, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, to the port city, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Not a great start for a prophet. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners or the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea in order to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so the captain of the ship came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Or to use an English idiom, what are you playing at? Arise. We've heard that word once before when God called Jonah. And now the captain says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps that God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. And so they said to one another, the sailors, come, let's cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they did. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And so the sailors said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of of what people are you? Jonah answers a few of those questions. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's just about everything. Heaven, the sea, the dry land. And so perhaps not surprisingly, the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to Jonah, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea had grown more and more tempestuous. And Jonah said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it's because of me that this tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. So they picked up Jonah. They hurled him into the sea. And immediately the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They weren't just fearing in general. They feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows of obedience. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. We, most of us imagine that the story of Jonah is a story about a whale. And we got to the whale here already at the end of chapter One, or the great fish, as it's called. And yet I've picked a sermon, uh, a slide for the sermon series that's full of desert. This is actually a picture of Dubai, which is another great city in our world today. But I picked a picture of a great city in the desert because that's actually what Nineveh is. And it's really what half the book of Jonah is about. Already here in chapter 1, in the introduction, we've seen uh, Jonah's call from the Lord, arise and go to Nineveh. And we've seen that Jonah goes in the opposite direction. 
The fish comes, chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, and then the second half of the book, including the climax, is all what happens in Nineveh, this great city in the middle of the desert. And so we'll just look at a map here just for a moment. That passage that I mentioned earlier in 2 Kings 14 mentions that Jonah is from Gath-Hefer, which you can see right in the lower middle of the map there. And when Jonah receives this call from the Lord, he's probably in Jerusalem. And so Gath-Hefer and Jerusalem, those are both within the boundaries of Israel. And so Jonah, rather than going east to Nineveh, goes the opposite direction. He goes down to the port city of Joppa and then is heading west as far away from Nineveh as he can get to Tarshish, which doesn't even make it on our map. Now, Jonah, the the story skips over uh, between chapters 2 and 3. It skips over however Jonah got from the edge of the shore where the fish spit him up all the way east to Nineveh. But there's no doubt some part of the journey there too, which isn't important for our purposes. What is important as we look at this map is to see that God calls Jonah to get up, to arise, and to go to Nineveh, this country that is far from Israel and actually that had a reputation of being uh, a very brutal empire. They were one of Israel's enemies. Israel, this little nation right on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, was surrounded by other nations, still is today, uh, many of whom are considered enemies. And so rather than go east to the Assyrian empire, to Israel's enemies, Jonah decides to flee, to get up and go the other direction toward Tarshish. Now, it's not an accident, I don't think, that when Scripture says that Jonah flees from the Lord, or that he runs away, that that's one of the ways in which, one of the main ways in which the Old Testament especially talks about sin. Talks about sin as running from God. All the way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve, after they've eaten the fruit from the garden, God comes to them and meets them in the garden, and their response is to run away and hide. And here, Jonah does exactly the same thing. He runs away from the presence of the Lord. He runs away from the voice of the Lord, and he hides in the bottom of a ship. This is, Scripture wants us to know, this is rebellion. This is sin. And I think if we're honest, probably all of us have experienced at one time or another the storm that comes after we run away from the voice of God, after we run away from the presence of God or try to get away. And while it might be overstating it to say that the storm is God's punishment, I think at least we ought to remember that if God is a God of justice, and mercy, if he's a God of love, not just for Israel, the nation, but for all the other nations, then when we are running from him, we're running from his justice, we're running from his mercy, and we're running from his love. And so it shouldn't surprise us that not only Jonah, but us too, when we flee from God's voice, from his good plan and order, that we get a taste of the chaos in our world. But interestingly, importantly, 
This isn't just a story about Jonah. I said in the introduction that Jonah really is a foil for the love and the mercy and the justice of God. And God, even though Jonah has rebelled and run away, God doesn't give up on Jonah. Just as God doesn't give up on us. In fact, God uses Jonah to preach to even more pagans than he would have, even more of Israel's enemies than he would have otherwise if he would have gone straight to Nineveh. Jonah, uh, in Jonah's day, as I said, the, the Israelites were surrounded by all of these other nations that had all kinds of different stories, all kinds of different history. They were all at war with one another. But all the nations, apart from Israel, had one thing in common, which is that they all worshipped many gods. They were all polytheistic. Every, all these other nations had gods, a different god, a god for the heavens, a god for the earth, a god for the sea, a god for my town, a god for your town, a god for the harvest and for birth, for fertility, a god of death in the underworld, a different god for everything. And so when the ship is uh, in the middle of this tempest, in the middle of this storm, we see that all of these sailors are crying out to their different gods, hoping that if they, trying to figure out which god is it that we have, have wronged, that is angry with us, that is punishing us, and maybe we can appease him. Maybe we can make that god happy. There's a little bit of control there, Right? If, if the world is as simple as different gods are in, in charge of different things, then as people, all we need to do is just figure out what we've done wrong and appease that little god, and then everything will be okay again. Or, if we don't want to make that god happy, we can just run. If, you're, if you made the god of the sea angry, all you need to do is just get back to dry land. If you made the god of your town angry, you just need to move to the next town and you'll be okay. That's why the men are not just terrified, but exceedingly terrified when Jonah tells them, oh yes, the God that I'm running from is the God of heaven who also made the sea and the dry land. He's running from a God that can get him wherever he goes. Now, that might scare the sailors who believe in this polytheistic uh, world. But for us as Christians, it should give us pause, certainly, when we try to run from God, but ultimately it should give us comfort. Because what Jonah learns and what the sailors learn is that there's no place where he can run to escape God's presence, to escape God's power, God's ability to, to call him back to repentance, but also God's provision for him. His ability to rescue him, to redirect him, and put him on the right path once again. That should be of great comfort for us as God's people. There's no place where we can go. There's nothing that we can do to escape God's presence, to escape his power, to worm our way out of his redemptive work, his redemptive plan. One theologian says it this way. He says, you can't encounter the living God and walk away unchanged. The sailors are no exception. The sailors were Canaanites. They worshipped, among others, the, the god of the sea. 
probably one of the gods they were praying to. But here, they go from being afraid and, and making sacrifices to their own gods to fearing the God, the Lord, to crying out to him, to worshiping him, and then to making vows, promises of obedience. You can't encounter the living God and walk away unchanged. Jonah can't, the sailors can't, and we can't. Now, that's not to say that we will always be changed for the better. There are countless examples of people throughout Scripture and throughout history who encounter the living God and their hearts are hardened. They rebel even harder or push even further away. But for God's people, as if, if and when we maintain softer hearts, if and when we come to worship, we come to scripture, we come eager to hear God speak, then when we encounter the living God and when we are changed, we can rest confident and joyful in God's provision for us because we can celebrate that we are joining him in his work of redemption, restoration on our, in our world. The sailors who come from this polytheistic world where you can run from one God to another and from one place to another, they assume that this storm is not a natural consequence, but some God's punishment, a supernatural consequence, if you will. But even here in God's calming of the sea, even here in his provision for the sailors, his provision for Jonah, and in his redirecting Jonah, we see echoes of what God has been doing all along, what God has been doing from the beginning, and what God continues to do in the story of Jonah and in our stories today. We hear echoes of uh, stories of redemption, like the story of Joseph, that what you intended for evil, God worked for good. We see echoes, or, or, or uh, excuse me, we see a foretaste of the kind of good and redemptive work that Jesus came to do. That in the midst of the chaos and the fear and the death of his world, that he worked for peace, for calm, for shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word, a word that shows up many times in the Old Testament that means a lot more than just peace or just the absence of conflict, the absence of a storm. What God has been doing from the beginning, what he's doing in the story of Jonah, and what he's still doing in our world today is working for redemption, for restoration, and for renewal. And that's really what shalom is all about. One theologian calls shalom universal flourishing. It's everything and everyone in right relationship with everything and everyone else. It's a world not just where storms stop over the ocean and where ships don't go down, but a world where everyone and everything exists in right relationship with everyone and everything else. That's what we see or what we begin to see in this story, already here in chapter 1. And I want to outline just a few of those things before we close. First of all, we already went through how Jonah is running from God. He's rebelling against God. He's sinning. 
And the sailors expect that when they throw Jonah overboard, the only possible end for Jonah is that he is going to die. And so they cry out to God and they say, Lord, don't hold us guilty of this man's blood. They expect that they're killing him. And yet, Jonah is not the sacrifice in this story. The Lord rescues him. The Lord saves him. He protects him. Jonah is not the sacrifice that the sailors think he is. Jonah, in fact, needs the same sacrifice that the sailors need. The guilty man doesn't die. He's rescued. Secondly, the second way that God is working for redemption and restoration and renewal for Shalom in this story is that these foreigners, these people from the other nations who worship other gods, turn to the one true God. In the beginning of this story, all we know is that they're heading west to Tarshish. But we see that through this storm, that they are changed. They go from worshiping these foreign gods, these little g gods of all these, maybe the god of the sea or god of all their different regions, to worshiping the one true God. And in finding their place in their relationship with God, they are brought along into this story of renewal and restoration. They're brought along into their, their proper place in the story of universal flourishing or shalom. And the third way in which God works for redemption, for renewal, for restoration, is that he calms the storm. He calms the, the physical storm. The, the winds die down, the sea calms, and these men, we can only assume, continue on their way and get to where they're going. But he also calms the storm and in providing for Jonah, sets Jonah, sets not only the, the world and the Mediterranean Sea sort of right, as it were, or as it's supposed to be, but he sets Jonah on his right path again. The, sea, the, the fish swallows him and what we'll see uh, in, at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 is that the fish takes Jonah and spits him up on dry land again. But not just dry land in Tarshish, dry land back to where God had called him to go. And so even as God calms the physical storm, he calms that chaos and that rebellion in Jonah's heart as well. And he sets Jonah back on dry ground and back on, uh, on his feet, but he also sets Jonah back on the right path. What Jonah learns, begins to learn in this passage, is that he is desperately in need of the very mercy of God that he finds so troubling to offer to others. And that's, again, a celebration for us as God's people. Jonah, this man who has all this national pride, who is an advisor to the king and wants to expand the Israelite empire, the man who would rather go to sea the opposite direction over here than go to Israel's enemy, he's so very unwilling to offer God's grace and God's mercy to others, and yet he finds that he is in desperate need of that very same mercy that he doesn't want to offer to others. What we celebrate as Christians in Jonah's uh, humbleness, maybe in his humiliation, 
what we celebrate is that we are in the same need as Jonah, as the Assyrians, as the Canaanites, as all people. That we, we all have the same need. And so we all come to the same place or to the same God to worship and to ask to have our needs met, to ask for mercy, to plead for God's love to be poured out to us as well. And what we celebrate as Christians is that we don't ask hoping for something that we do not know or do not see, but that we ask for mercy, that we ask for God's love on the basis of what Jesus has already done and accomplished for God's people. That we ask God with the sureness, with the certainty that comes in knowing that God has already poured out his great love for his people. He has already poured out more mercy than we could ever handle. It's God's mercy that saves Jonah. It's his mercy that saves the sailors. It's his mercy that Jonah will preach to Nineveh when he gets there in, uh, for us in a week or two. And it's God's mercy that will save all of us. And so we can come and we can approach God not having to plead and to beg and to hope aimlessly. But because of Jesus, we can approach God with confidence. And so let's do that together this morning as we close in prayer. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we come to you this morning. And we humbly confess that we are as desperate and as desperately in need of your mercy as Jonah was, as the sailors were, and as the people of Nineveh were. But Lord, we also come boldly and with great confidence because you have already shown us through Jonah and through the foretaste we see in this story, but in these later days, you have shown us fully the depths of your great love through your son, Jesus Christ. So God, we thank you and praise you for your love and your mercy poured out to us. And for your justice also poured out and paid for by Jesus so that the weight, that burden of our sin doesn't fall on us. That like Jonah and like the sailors, we might too be saved And not just saved from one storm, but saved from a chaos now and in eternity. So Father, we ask that you would give us, even this morning, a taste of that shalom, that universal flourishing. That we might be equipped and empowered and filled once more by your Holy Spirit. So that as we close our worship here, as we go into our week, that we might be powerfully aware that we have been invited to join you in your work of renewal, of redemption, and of restoration. Thank you, Jesus, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for being with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we sing our last song,